Hello, I'm Eve Poole, Interim Chief Exec of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Uh, the RSC was founded in 1783 and our strapline is about making knowledge useful. Um, our 1800 fellows um, form Scotland's National Academy um, and together we try and do exactly that, making knowledge useful, bringing together the leading minds of Scotland for the benefit not only of this nation uh, but further afield. And tonight I have great pleasure in welcoming you to the first evening event of our Curious series. Um, and tonight we're curious about Damien Barr, who is a newly minted fellow of the RSE. I'm not going to introduce him because this evening is about him introducing himself um, and telling us some stories because that's one of the themes of Curious. So I'm now going to hand over to Damien because we're very curious about what's going on in his head and to help him tell stories to us, I have asked him to pick five objects that would help him do just that. So Damien, I gather your first object is a mug. Tell us about that. It is, and thank you so much for having me, Eve. And I am a freshly minted fellow, so again, I still can't believe that that's happened. Thank you again for electing Congratulations. me. Congratulations. Hello to everybody watching as well. I'm in Brighton. I've just moved house, and the sun is streaming in through the window where I have not yet had time to put up a curtain. So you'll have to forgive me if I'm in like Caravaggio, Chiaroscuro uh, all night. Um, anyway, so my first object is really precious to me, it's really fragile. And it's a really cheap mug. Um, and it says on it, keep Austin weird on one side, it's really faded, as you can see. And on the other side, it says book people. Um, I've never actually had coffee out of it. It normally has pens and rulers in like this on my desk. Um, and I acquired this mug in Austin in Texas, which is where I did my second year of university. And it was a really transformative year in my life. Um, and Austin was and is an incredibly special place to me, both as a person and also as a writer. So tell us a little bit about what took you there. What was the decision that made you decide that going to Texas was the way you wanted to spend that part of the university? I mean, it's, it's, not, this, it's not sort of top of the list, is it, normally for most students where you sort of think, yeah, let's go to New York or California. Um, I studied, I started my university career at Napier in Edinburgh and I was the first person in my family to go to university apart from some uncles and um, neither of my parents had been supported to finish high school so I had done my first year at Napier, it did not go well and I ended up dropping out um, and I ended up having a summer at home and then going to Lancaster University which is where my best friend from school had gone. And Lancaster was and is a fantastic university, in fact it's got even better. Um, since I've been there and I did English literature and sociology as my undergraduate because I wanted you know my life is about stories even then I was interested in stories and it seemed to me like English literature was a way of accessing those stories and sociology was a way of understanding the stories of the people around me and my curiosity really about what Texas was was piqued when I saw a notice board and there was a scholarship attached to it. And I thought, well, I wonder if I can, I wonder what that would be like. I had such a weird idea of Texas from, you know, films when I was a kid. And um, anyway, I won the scholarship, but it didn't really have very much money attached. And I didn't have enough money to go abroad that year. And so, and I write about this, what I'm about to tell you and Maggie and me in my memoir. And so I spoke to my teachers from school and said, look, I need some help. Like, what, what can I do? What is there a job I can do? How can I earn this money? 
and they put the word out and their friends put the word out and before I knew it, I was summoned to my old headmaster's office for an interview with a lawyer um, who said he was acting on behalf of a client who wished to remain anonymous um, but who wanted to know what who I was and what I wanted to do so I sat down and I answered some questions about who I was and why I liked English and all of that sort of stuff and at the end of the interview that the lawyer said you know how much money do you need um, and I told him and he said you're going to need much more than that and I said well I can get by you know on on this and he wrote me a check there and then for this you know this greater sum and he said that the only stipulations were that I would write a letter to my mysterious benefactor um, and let them know how I was doing, you know, what their money was up to. Um, and that I never attempted to find out who they were. And so, <laughs> um, and so I did. So I took the money and I went to Texas and, you know, I can talk for hours about what happened there, but I went to Texas and it was not as I imagined when I got off the plane. In fact, it was really hot and clammy, much like I am right now. And, um, and Austin is just this liberal, wild, crazy city that's not conservative at all. Like It's like a diamond formed by the pressure of the rest of conservative Texas. And I wrote those letters and I kept writing those letters for years afterwards um, until the lawyer who didn't abuse me died um, and no longer connected me to the client. So I kept writing to other lawyers at the firm. I never heard back from that person who probably is now thinking, I wish this actually stop writing to me it's been writing to you for 20 years but I remain grateful to that mysterious benefactor for, for doing that um, and all, you know when I look at that mug which is on my desk all day every day I'm reminded of the adventures that I had when I was in Austin which is where I wrote my first piece for a newspaper for the Austin American Statesman because of a brilliant journalist there called Michael Barnes um, where I made friends that I still have now, and probably where I learned more about Shakespeare, actually, than I did on my English degree in England. Um, takes an outsider, you know, to have that perspective. So, um, so yes, and Austin is weird, and it's very proudly weird, and, you know, that speaks to, you know, a part of me as well. It doesn't want to be the same as other places. Um, and Book People, the bookshop that I got it from, is iconic, and if you are an author and you tour the world with a book, you want to go to book people because it's just this huge department store of books and everybody goes there and it's lovely. So, yes. And have you been back with your books? I haven't been back with my books to Austin, no. I have been back to do other work because um, they have the Harry Ransom Centre for the Humanities, which is basically just this incredible archive. And um, and I've been back there and had a look at that, but I haven't, I haven't toured there with my own book yet. I've toured to other places in America, but not to Austin. I'm determined to do that. I'm determined to go to book people and, and appear there. Oh, fantastic. And what a <laughs> lovely story about your benefactor. I'm sure they're well, very, just, very proud of you. I have no idea who that person is. And I just don't yeah. think it just shows you that a random act of kindness can really change somebody's life. And it really did change my life. It was also the year where um, I first went into therapy, where I first accessed mental health help. And that just really, really, really helped me get a different perspective on my life and feel the sense of control and agency and it was just very special. That's fantastic. Well let's see what your second object story might be and your second object is a queer Britain badge so tell us about why you've picked that. So here is this wee badge. Um, so Queer Britain is a museum that has just opened 
it's the UK's first LGBTQ plus museum. And I, I thought that was a misprint when I read it because I just assumed that there would be a, a museum like that already or that it had opened and then closed. And, it, you know, no, it's true. It's the first one. Um, and it's open just behind King's Cross in, uh, in London. So if people are trying to find it, it's just behind the Waitrose. It's very awkward to find, but it's right there. And, um, and really, it's the first museum of its kind in the UK, but not in the world. And it's telling the stories that haven't been told in history about LGBTQ plus people who are so often criminalised um, or erased. Um, people want to pretend that we don't exist still. Um, and um, it's a really special sanctuary. It started by Joe Galliano, run by a, a guy called Dan Vo and a team of, of brilliant uh, employees and volunteers. And, you know, so right now they've got an exhibit up. It includes the door of Oscar Wilde's jail cell in Reading Prison, where he wrote the ballad of Reading Jail, the very famous poem, his poem to his former lover who got him jailed. Um, it includes the cloak worn by Ollie Alexander at Glastonbury. Uh, so it's a mixture of joyful items and more poignant items, but it's all very powerful. And, you know, it's, it, it needs to exist because we don't exist still in other museums and in other places. I've lost count of the number of galleries that I've gone to where, you know, you, you read about two women and they're described as friends or, you know, companions and relationships are erased and the joy and love is taken out of it and the, the struggle and the strength is taken out of it and so uh, so queer britain is a, a place where those stories are told without shame um and um and told really well i have to say it's a really, it's a very small museum um but it has a very nice gift shop <laughs> as i discovered when i when i accidentally bought too much stuff um so no i i, I would recommend that people of all kinds visit it um and it's also really interesting to see when you're in, a in that museum, I've noticed people are very moved in a way that they aren't necessarily always in other museums. There's a thing that people have where they feel sort of seen by the museum's purpose. Um, and that's really quite moving to, to be part of when you, when you visit it. So what does it mean to you that that museum is now there? I think it, I think it feels to me like right now in the UK and in the world, you know, and I've talked about this a lot recently because I, I made a documentary for Radio 4 about the history of Pride, um, 50 years history of, of Pride, 1972, since the GLF marched in London. But of course, you know, people have been marching for as long as there have been people in different ways. And, and, I, and I'm really conscious that, you know, right now, two political candidates are vying for leadership of a party and leadership of a country. And both of those candidates have come out against so-called woke politics. Um, and both of those candidates want to want to roll back rights for LGBTQ plus people. Um, they might dress it up in other rhetoric, um, but the fact remains that, you know, Section 28 is a piece of legislation that was created in my lifetime and rolled back in my lifetime that the Tories apologise for rolling back. But we're now looking at a, a new kind of Section 28 aimed at young trans and non-binary children and people. And that's really concerning and really worrying for me that we live 
and that I'm living in this moment. I've never experienced so much hatred as a gay person um, in my life as I have in recent times in this country. Uh, yesterday, I tweeted about uh, the, the brilliance of the Lionesses winning the football and how there were more out gay and bisexual women on that team than there were in the whole of the men's league. I had to close access to my comments because I got so much hate, you know, and that was you know within a minute. And so it, so Queer Britain to me is a bastion of stories and history. Um, and it shows that we've always been here. Um, we've always been in every walk of life and every family. Um, we always have been and we always will be. Um, and that's just a really simple, powerful, powerful statement to make when right now, you know, we're being told that we don't exist or we don't, we don't know who we are. Um, and in other parts of the world, you know, in 35 countries, it's still illegal to be LGBTQ+, you know, illegal. So when I book a holiday, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the list thinking, am I going to get in jail with my husband if I go to this place? And even if we don't go to jail, are we supporting a regime that supports sending people like us to jail? So, you know, I think, I think that, I think people think that this, uh, mood or issue is about people being offended or being upset or somehow being fragile and it's not it's about people's right to exist and go about their daily lives in the most basic ways um and queer britain tells that tells that story really and i think it's a hopeful place um so yeah i feel i feel i'm really glad that it exists um, Why do you think we're going backwards on all of that? What's brought that on, do you suppose? Oh God, that's such a big question. And I don't feel like, I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, the, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the best person to answer it. But I think that, you know, if you look what's happening in Hungary and Poland with the declaration of, you know, no LGBTQ plus zones, it goes hand in hand with the racism. Um, so Orban saying no mixing of the races. Um, so, you know, and Putin you know, saying that Ukraine is a country of Nazis and um, gender criminals, uh, because that country wants to advance rights for LGBTQ plus people, and by the way, it hasn't. Um, so I think there's a sort of um, uh, moment where, of, of extreme, this is coupled by extreme social unrest, um, and political and economic unrest. And I'm really very worried um, that, you know, that the trans and queer people are being made a scapegoat in these countries. Um, and um, that something, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a scary time. It's also an optimistic time in that organizations like Stonewall, Rainbow Railroad, um, you know, brilliant journalists like Patrick Strudwick, you know, there are voices out there who are who are raising the alarm um, and, and organisations who are doing brilliant advocacy work. So I don't think that it's a sort of doomsday scenario. I don't think that nothing good has been done. I mean, this museum opened up, it didn't close down. Uh, but I do think that, you know, we need our allies um, and we, we need people who are who live in line with enlightenment values uh, to speak up um uh and to take a to take a stand um and to refuse to to roll these rights back roe v wade is the first and of many you know uh, uh freedoms of bodily autonomy um which are being rolled back um in america 
Uh, and, you know, that didn't come about overnight. Um, but what happened before that was the passing of the don't say gay laws in Florida and in other states, I think 20 other states. Well, children literally aren't allowed to say, and teachers aren't allowed to say, and children are being outed at school, outed to their parents, um, and teachers are losing their jobs. Qualified, brilliant teachers are losing their jobs for, for, for just recognizing the humanity of the children that they teach. So it's, it, it, you, these attacks on the LGBTQ plus community, it's like kinase in the coal mine, I think. Um, and, you know, and we're sort of singing, going, come on, come on, come on, you know, um, and I, I think people are listening. I think people are listening, slowly. Thank you. Sorry, that's really heavy, isn't it? That's so intense. It's so interesting. It's just, it's just a moment that, you know, that, yeah. we're, that, that we're living in and that we're living through. And I think, I think what you say is making me think very hard about the importance of beacons like um, the museum. Yeah. And the danger, the canaries in the coal mine danger of all of these movements around the world to curtail freedoms and what that means, and that we mustn't be asleep when these kinds of changes happen. Um, we, 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 we've got to notice that they're happening and they might not be happening to us yet, but they are happening. And when I think about the work that, you know, the Royal Society can do, that the other learned societies can do to, you know, to, to, to tell, to, to keep history alive, to make, to tell history in its fullest sense, whether we're talking about class, whether we're talking about sexuality, whether we're talking about race, ethnicity, religion, you know, all of these factors, you know, these are all stories and histories that, that we need to know um, and share and amplify and carry forward into our social policy um, and, and, into our, and into our politics. You know, and that's it's a lot of joined up dots, but, you know, lots of people are doing that. So. Yeah. And again, thank you to you for storytelling uh, yourself in Maggie and Me, because I think, again, the more stories we have, the less we can deny or choose not to yeah. hear that this is just normal, normal life for very many people. And it's yeah, I, th I think that that's, you know, that that wasn't something I was conscious of doing when I was writing that when I was writing that book. And it's a strange thing to have people tell you that your life is social history. But you know, it is, it is a fact of memoirs that you memorialise. But when I was writing my novel, when I was writing You Will Be Safe Here, it was, you know, that's a story that's set in South Africa and it looks at the events of the Second Boer War, which we're not taught about in school, but which is a kind of history that we have a received image of via Kipling um, and other sort of jingoistic uh, empire builders. Um, and I was drawn to that story in the past by events in the present, by the murder of a boy in South Africa in the present, a boy who looked just like a boy I'd gone to school with and who I felt this emotional connection with, a boy who'd gone to a camp run by soldiers who said that they make men out of boys. And that boy had been murdered in that camp. And that camp was run by white extremists. And I was interested in, in what was driving these men to run these places, what was driving parents to send their children to these places, specifically their sons. And the story of what I found in the present led me to unpick a history of the past, which is not a history that we're taught, a history of how, at that point, the British invented the system of concentration camps. And it's really chilling when you read that in Hansard, when you read the words concentration camp and you see the money being allocated to them, how more women and children died in those camps and soldiers died in the entire war. And what implications those camps had for 20th century history. Um, and so with that, 
I, I was very conscious of stepping into a, a historical space where there were competing narratives, but also all these spaces where people just, for the most part, didn't care about the lives of those women and children. We wouldn't know if it wasn't for a pioneering British woman called Emily Hophouse who went there and recorded the stories of these women and children. We wouldn't know about so much about what had happened, about what the British Empire did, um, um, the good and the bad, but mostly the bad. Um, and so I, I think that when I'm writing, um, I'm always conscious of what is the story that I've been told? Where is the space in this story for me to tell my own story? Whether that is the story of my own life um, in Maggie and me, or whether that was the, you know, the story of, of, of empire, of war, um, and you will be safe here. And I, you know, as I think about what I'm writing next, you know, I'm thinking about that too, so. Thank you. Well, one person who's always been advocate very positive is Dolly Parton. So tell us about your object to oh. do with Dolly. So this is this is a this is a picture. I hope that you can see this and just kind of adore the gorgeousness of Dolly. Um, this is by an Australian artist whose name escapes me actually. Uh, it was on the back. Um, and she, the woman who made this, so this was given to me by a photographer called Mark Bessie. He's a brilliant, talented photographer. And I just think that Dolly is. Like if we talked about dark things and difficult things, she's the opposite of that. She is a being of pure light um, and joy. And I think her imagination library, where you know, which now operates in the UK as well, where children are given books, not just to borrow, like from a library, which is a brilliant thing, but to own, which really makes you feel invested in books and in stories. Um, we know that. Um, and I just think that, that her choosing to spend her money to you know on the imagination library or choosing to spend her money on a theme park which employs you know lots of people locally and is as sustainable as it can be her choosing to spend her money developing the, the dolly moderna vaccine i mean i was distraught when i did not get the dolly vaccine i was like i get the dolly vaccine in my arm but i had to have somebody else's vaccine and so you know um, i just think i think that she's absolutely brilliant and um and hugely talented musician and businesswoman, and she loves books and stories. And when I first, my first job on Front Row, um, they said to me, you know, who do you want to interview? Um, uh, and when, you know, I would interview lots of people. I would, you know, there were lots of people that I went on to interview, like Pet and, um, you know, all kinds of incredible film stars and musicians and stuff. The one person I said was Dolly Parton, and they said, well, if you can get her, you know, you can, you can talk to her. And I, I was like, this is a challenge. And um, and uh, and thanks to the nice people at the Imagination Library, I was able to meet that child and interview her. And it was just the most incredible, what was it, 12 minutes? Um, you know, um, <laughs> and, you know, we just sat and had a chat. Were you nervous? Yeah. We sat and had a chat about Catcher in the Rye and um, books that she was reading. Because she's on tour all the time, so she reads on tour bus all the time. And she's just brilliant. So... And she's aware of how she's dismissed as a woman. Um, she's aware of how her body, you know, she's, she gets her dismissed in her hair and all the rest of it. But she's actually, I think she's truly iconic. And I genuinely think we're lucky to live in the age of Dolly. Um, and there's some really serious academic writing about Dolly now. Um, and some really very good books about her. So, yeah, I'm a fan. So if you were going to send every child in the UK a book, which would be your compulsory book you think we all oh, should At what age are they? Is it... <laughs> well, give me one for primary and one for secondary. One for primary and one for secondary. Mm, okay. Um, mm, I suppose 
Um, for primary, I'm just looking at my, I've got a pile of kids books down the floor because I, I periodically reread kids books. Um, I think for high school, I mean, the book that made the biggest difference to me in high school, and I have a signed first edition of it here that was given to me by a friend, is The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, which is just an incredible story of two sisters trying to survive in the American South. Uh, it's, it's set in the uh, sort of depression era Georgia, I think it's Georgia. Um, and these two sisters are, are black, they're encountering racism, they're encountering sexism. It's so many forces are acting against them, but they remain true to themselves, true to their, their bond. They find joy in the world. And, you know, the line about the colour purple is that it was God having a joyful moment to himself when he created the colour purple. And whenever he sees it, she smiles. Um, so I, I think that I think that really changed me because it was written in the vernacular. It was written in the voice of these young women and it made me see that that you could use your own voice. And I think every young person, whoever they are, needs to hear that message that you can use your own voice and your own voice is your own voice and it's valid and important. Um, and it also shows people harming others with their voice and healing others with their voice. And we have to be aware that we all have that capability, both to harm and to heal. But I think it's very powerful and important book. I would definitely recommend that. And also the film is actually very good too. Um, I've never seen the musical. So that's high school book. And a primary school book, I'm struggling because I, read, <laughs> I, I always read ahead of my age. So I'm trying to, you know, the books that made a big impact on me at primary school were you know, were terrible horror novels that I shouldn't have been reading at that age that I snuck out of the library and stuff like that. You know, I read a lot of Stephen King when I was about 10, um, which probably shaped, shaped my outlook. And I wouldn't recommend that primary school children read those novels. So I'll have to think about that and get back to you. Yeah, let us know. Put it on Twitter and uh, yeah. we'll be curious to see what you come up with. Um, but thank you. It's always one of those difficult questions. I think Desert Island Discs asks you about asks you about the Bible and Shakespeare, doesn't it? But um, oh, yeah. different thing to think about giving a child a book, yeah. a key book, um, and that's a that's a big big challenge. Well, isn't it? Oh yeah, I did. I was a judge on the Costa Prize recently, and I read a book. It's a it is a book for children and young adults. I don't know what age it starts at though. It might be like a first year of high school, but I could see people. I could see kids in primary seven reading it. I suppose. And it's called the, the Crossing. I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it. It's written in verse, which just again sounds off-putting and, and stern. But it's it's the story of two young people, and um, just about teenagers. And one of them, he's trying to make his way to safety from Eritrea, and the other is a girl who's living in a coastal town in Kent, sort of like a Folkestone type place, where racism is becoming a, a problem in, in her town, and she's lost her mother. Um, and she is going to take part in a sponsored swim, um, and uh, um, and uh, and basically the story is about these two really different characters with really different lives. But what it does in the, in the narrative that's really clever is is that you know one character will say you know and she closed the door, and then the and she closed the door is the first line of the next poem, and so it's a sort of like a baton structure, like a relay of story. Um, and it doesn't go where you expect it to. And I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried when I read it. Judy Murray also loved it. She was a judge on the Costa Prize and she thought it was really great too. So, um, I mean, it didn't, it didn't win. 
uh, but it was, I, I think, is a really, I, that was a book I remember seeing at the time. I, I think this should be in every school library uh, in the country. And I don't know if it's a sort of secondary school or end primary school, but it's a really, really brilliant book. It won the, it won the YA or Children's Prize, but it should definitely, you know, go on to do great things. It's very powerful. Fantastic. And I would never have read it unless I was judging that prize. So, you know, just goes to show you. So tell us a little bit about you in writing. So I gather you've got a precious notebook. Right. So this is a precious notebook. I'll show it to you. Um, a, a kind of fancy notebook that I was given um, by my editor, Alexa von Hirschberg. She was my editor at Bloomsbury for, um, for my novel, You'll Be Safe Here. She's South African British and um, was the, therefore, in many ways, the perfect editor. She's a, a, a brilliant, perspicacious, kind of insightful woman. And she gave me this book at, when I wrote You'll Be Safe Here, and she said, um, this is for your next book. Um, and I, because it's so fancy, and because, you know, I, I think like lots of people, whether they grew up poor or not, I, I just sort of thought it was too fancy to use. Um, and then the pandemic happened, and I just sort of like, thought to myself, why are we saving things for the future when we don't know what, what the future holds, you know? Um, this, if ever there was a time to not save things for best, it's now. And so um, I started to use it to scribble notes. Um, so you can, you can see my terrible handwriting there, um, terrible notes. Um, and, um, and yeah, and like I've been in it in lots of different times, different bad pens. Um, and it's, I'm using it for one thing and one thing only, I'm using it for my next novel, uh, my next book, which is a novel. Um, and it's not a notebook about my characters, because uh, I'm doing that all digitally uh, with notes into my phone. This is a book about how I feel about writing the book and what it means to me and why I care. Um, and so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a diary um, of, of writing it, um, I suppose, as much as anything else. So it's not really for anybody other than me. And I don't know that it will be useful to the world, but it's a place for me to put my thoughts and feelings about this process. And also to remind me when I look at it that actually I am doing work, <laughs> even though I do lots of different things, I am still writing on my, my novel and I am, you know, I am still a novelist. Um, and that's, yeah, it's really nice and it's important to have that. So I feel very lucky to have it, it's very swanky. So you've, you've obviously had a good experience with your Bloomsbury editor. I gather you had a very good uh, relationship with one of your other editors, the lovely Diana. So tell us a little bit about Diana and what, what role the editors play for you in this storytelling process. Well, um, Diana Athill, who you mentioned there, um, died a couple of years ago. She was 100, 101. Um, and she wasn't my official editor ever. That would have been far too terrifying. Um, but she did read my uh, my memoir, she did read my novel, and she did give me notes um, uh, in her spidery handwriting. Let me see if I've got any of her. I usually have her notes to be, oh, they might be somewhere on my desk, um, to hand. Um, but um, her handwriting got very spidery. Um, but yes, so I mean, she edited, you know, uh, Vidya Naipaul, 
um, Jean Rees, the White Tiger RCC, um, Denton Welsh. Um, and she didn't really start telling you the own story until she was much older. She'd written some fiction when she was younger. She started memoir when she was later on. Um, and I remember reading in her book in Somewhere Towards the End, which is a collected memoir from Granta, and she said, you know, that her family discouraged her as a child, very posh, grew up in a country house, discouraged her from talking about her own um, personal story and said to her, you are not the only pebble on the beach, her grandmother said to her. And, um, and that really stuck with me because I think, you know, that we we all hear that regardless of who we are. We all, you know, we're, we're not all encouraged to tell our stories all the time. Um, and um, and I thought, wow, if, you know, if the woman from the country house can have that barrier, then the boy from the council house can too. And, you know, and it made me think about, you know, the problems of privilege as well. Um, so yeah, we were very unlikely friends and we met when she came and did my literary salon. Um, and I think she was 93 when, when, when we met. Yeah, 93 um, or maybe 92. And I just, you know, she's just a most delightful person and I, funny and clever and kind and so on top of the world. And, um, and we used to go on outings together to museums and gardens and out for lunch and things like that. And she was just an incredible person. And she understood story structure like nobody else I've ever met. Um, and yes, she she was very candid as well. You know, she didn't like something, she didn't dress it up. We knew, you know, and um, and those people are invaluable. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, I miss her. I miss her still. I'm very glad that she wasn't around for COVID because she was in a in a home, which has since closed, sadly. Um, and uh, but um, but I I think of her often. And if anybody hasn't read her or wants to get to know her, you just have to pick up her memoirs. And her voice just sings off the page. And she's funny and bright and kind, and ruthless. And it's called Stet, is it the memoir? Stet is her memoir of publishing, working in publishing, in which she describes, you know, things like having sex with her boss very unsuccessfully and pretending that it didn't happen in the office the next day. And um, and that's, her, that's that one memoir, but there's loads somewhere towards the end is her memoir of getting older. Um, and, uh, and then, what's the other one called? I can't quite remember, but in any case, you know, there are there are three or four memoirs, uh, but the collected in a big collection. So I'm aware of the irony of me interviewing you this evening, because of course that's what you <laughs> normally do. So tell us a little bit about best person you've ever had and most challenging person you've ever had, either on the front row or on the salon or in any of the other ones that you've done. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, um, I remember interviewing Marie-Jean Perez, the pianist who, and I know very little about music and. And, um, and she made me understand something about playing the piano, about, you know, about, I thought it was about reciting and she made me understand that it was about interpreting and how she could bring something to the music that somebody else couldn't without breaking the rules of it too much. And she was just brilliant. And I, I really enjoyed that interview because I hadn't expected to. I think that one of my most, one of my favorite interviews ever um, at the Salon and if people are interested in the salon and they want to find out about it, they just go onto our website, um, which is thelitchysalon.co.uk. And there's a podcast with over 200 interviews there. Um, uh, the interview I'm about to tell you about, I don't think is on there because it was very early on and we weren't recording then. 
but Richard Holloway um, uh, was one of our earliest guests and we uh, we had a spot where it was just it was called Story of My Life where you asked somebody to choose a piece of work that said something about them um, and he was at the Rag and Bone Yard of the Heart, the eighth that he chose and he began to talk about doubt and the need for doubt and the terror of certainty which we touched on earlier on and you know, this is an audience of people in their 20s and 30s who didn't really know who Richard Holloway was, thought that, you know, that, that he looked like Foucault, was it Foucault? And he was just this, he was just, it was watch, like watching a sermon but not being preached at, you know, included. And everybody was in tears and on their feet cheering at the end of it, including me. I did fall in love with him at that point and have been in love with him ever since. He's a remarkable philosopher um, and theologian. Um, and... Um, yeah, that was an amazing interview. Again, because it was unexpected, and I love it when when you when people think they're getting one thing and you give them another, and they kind of go, oh, and it makes them think twice about a person. And if somebody picks up a book, you know, because they watched one of my shows, or, you know, whether it's watch the club or whatever, and I just love that. I love when people people get over that preconceptions. We did um, uh, one of the book groups in our last series, we had uh, a, a group of runners, women runners, and they read um, Graham Armstrong's book um, about boys and gangs, the title of which has just escaped me. What's it called? Um, oh, God. Um, somebody will correct me um, or tell me on the, or, or in the chat. But anyway, um, fuck fast, air lots of fighting, lots of swearing. And, um, and uh, you know, he he just totally challenged them, you know, and they were like, we would never have picked this book up. And, and they loved it, you know, because it told them a story and it told them the truth that they wouldn't otherwise have experienced. So, um, so yeah, Young Team, that's what it's called, Young Team. Um, so, yeah, so, so Graham was great. But, but um, I'm trying to think of challenging ones. Um, I remember interviewing Matt Lucas at the Cheltenham Festival and he had had a terrible personal tragedy um, and he lost somebody that he loved very close to him. And I knew that when we got to audience questions that somebody was going to ask about it. And it's not that I wasn't doing my job by not asking about it, it was that we'd agreed that he didn't feel comfortable talking about it in a room full of, you know, a thousand people. And why should he? You know, um, and I knew that somebody would do that. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to have to do this, you know, to my instinct is not to shut people down. Um, but I had to sort of say to this person, look, you know, I'm not going to do that. And that was really hard because I didn't want to be silencing them, but also I didn't want to be, in any, in any case, actually, Matt, that society wanted to speak about some of it. So, so that was a, that was a, that was a, a Really challenging but I mean you know I approach every interview with an opportunity to listen and it's really nice to just sit there and give people the space to talk um that's that's the job right it's it's not about you it's about you getting the best out of them and creating this holding a space for them um and really listening um if you can um, I find it hard if I've got difficult stuff going on in my own life um, uh, or I'm really late or something, I, I, I you know, I'm like, I find it hard to kind of switch into that mode. And then I think actually here's an opportunity to not think about my own life or, you know, uh, 
the world. I can just be present with this one person. And yes, there might be hundreds or thousands of people there, or many, lots of people watching or listening or whatever. But I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about the person that I'm with. So one of your other objects is um, a book by Janice Galloway. Tell us about that. Oh, this is just what a great book this is. And if people haven't read it, they need to immediately get their hands on it. It's called All Made Up. Um, this is a proof copy of Janice Galloway's second so-called anti-memoir. Um, Janice Galloway is one of Scotland's greatest living writers. And look, here it is signed um, from when I interviewed her in 2011. It says, uh, I want to correct the typos already. Janice Galloway for being in bar. And you can see from all the bits that I've folded, how many pages, you know, that I think are sort of like jumping out at me there. Um, and again, like The Colour Purple, this is a story written in vernacular, so it's written in the way that people speak. Um, and it's a story of sex and school and adolescence in small town Scotland. So I think it's Salt Irvine, um, basically, in the 1970s. It's a story of her and her mum, who's a cleaner, and her sister, who's older, glamorous, incredibly glamorous, unpredictable, violent, young woman, really troubled. And Janice is a good girl at school. And I was a good boy at school. Um, and Janice was, you know, a musician and she did Latin. And of course, she's very musically talented. And it's just, it's just a really honest account of what it was like to grow up there. And then she writes about growing up poor. She writes about, you know, the joys, the shame. Um, she's a very good understatement. Uh, she's very dry. Um, and she called, Janice calls it an anti-memoir. Because, you know, she doesn't, she wants to push at the boundaries of what a memoir is or should be and to make us think about how much truth do we tell about our own lives. And, um, yeah, I just, I think she's absolutely amazing. And the book is very funny. Um, uh, and there's a line in it, actually, I just opened this page, and it says, lucky, I've always been lucky. And, you know, you get this feeling that this is who you're talking to, this woman who's always felt that, even when it hasn't seemed like that in the book, and, and it often doesn't. And actually, Janice uh, did the very first interview with me for Magdalene and Me. She was the very first interview that I ever did was with her at uh, I Write in Glasgow, at the brilliant uh, festival there um, in the uh, Mitchell Library, where I used to go as a high school student uh, to, to research essays and things. And um, yeah, that was a real moment. But I just thought, my God, Janice Gallery didn't me. <laughs> I just kind of couldn't believe it. Uh, so yeah, she's incredible and it's very good. And her other book is called um, This Is Not About Me, her other memoir. Um, so yeah, terrific. I love Janice. Can't get up. So tell us what you're working on next. What stories are you telling? Oh, well, I'm not going to tell you about anything that's in this notebook um, because I had a long conversation with my agent this morning. <laughs> Just a lot of all days thinking about my edits. Um, but um, I'm doing a couple of, I'm always writing more than one thing. So that's the, that's the useful thing about me. Um, so I show a couple of little bits for The Guardian and the, in terms of longer pieces that I'm working on, I'm, I'm working on um, a stage adaptation of Maggie and Me with a brilliant Scottish playwright called James Lay, who has two plays on, not one, but two plays on just now, Wilf and Ode to Joy at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and he's brilliant and funny and smart and bright. And I've written plays for Radio 4 before, but I've never written them for the stage. And he and I are working together on a play of Maggie and Me. 
um, which is not just the book, but the world of the book and the time since the book has come out. It's kind of moved, it's 10 years next year since that book came out. So, so it's looking at the world since then as well. And it means since then. So I'm working on that with him and that's really nice to collaborate. And also I'm working with a screenwriter called Andrea Gibb, who's right to call the midwife among other things. She wrote Elizabeth is Missing, she's Scottish, based in Glasgow. I'm working with her and STV on a TV dramatisation of Mad Amy, um, which is kind of multi-series. Um, it's not just one off, it's a kind of more like a sort of Scottish Dairy Girls, if you can imagine that, but darker, even darker. And um, I'm working with her on that. Um, and at the beginning of lockdown, I finished my PhD. Um, I did my, my thesis about how we construct truth in memoir, but also with reference to novels, mainly memoir. And I've been thinking recently that I might do something with my PhD, but I don't know what it is. Like I might, I don't know, straightforwardly publish it through an academic publisher, or perhaps if one was interested, or I might adapt some of it uh, for a more general audience because it asks it asks three questions. You know, um, it's um, you know, uh, is it all true? Um, do you feel better? Um, and why should I write a memoir? Um, and it's the questions that I think we all ask ourselves as writers, but often as people. Um, and anyway, so I might do something with that or not. I'm not sure. I just kind of keep going back to it. Um, and what were your answers to those questions when you wrote Maggie and Me? Um, well, I think the, the the one about do I feel better now is, is 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 you know I ended by asking do you because I think that the thing about memoir is is that unlike fiction, um, fi fiction can be transformative. I'm not saying that it can't be, and it can be very healing. But the thing about memoir is is that that it's a a kind of a mutual contract for the writer in a way and the reader. There's a contract, and the the, the writer is saying this is true. Believe me. Please believe me, and um, and if the reader believes you, you enter into this contract together, and and it, you know the the resolution of that story can it's it's, a, it's sort of a trope in a way about about being cathartic or healing, but it offers opportunities by being honest um, and by being truthful that I think fiction can't not that it doesn't but just that it can fiction offers different opportunities. Um, so, so yes, and, and to the question of truth, um, you know, um, I will be exploring the idea of truth uh, in literature in its fullest form next year in a documentary that I'm making. Um, so, because it's something that I'm really preoccupied by right now. So, I'll be, I'll be doing, I just found out I'll be doing one of my projects. Yeah, interesting. Nothing, nothing like a casual interrogation of what does truth mean. <laughs> And how did you feel when Maggie and Me came out? What was that like for you, like yeah. unleashing that on the world? Um, I think it resolved a lot of stuff before because I think that once I'd started to write in earnest, because the book took seven years, so once I'd started to write, I was a big bit of it was about fear of what people would think about my family or me. Would they judge me? Would they be mean to my mom or my dad or my sister or my brother? Or you know, so I was um protective of people and of myself as well um and that sort of stopped me i think initially engaging with a lot of the emotional truth of what i was dealing with because a lot of it was really painful and difficult and 
I'd spent a lot of time trying not to think about those things. And here I was putting myself in a position where I had to think about those things. So, um, so I'd done a lot of that thinking beforehand. And like Diana with the pebble on the beach, you know, um, I'd given, I had to give myself permission to tell my story. Um, and then, you know, you go through a process with memoir where you're edited by your editor, another editor, and a legal editor. And a legal editor goes through the memoir and says, these are all the ways that you can be sued. And it's sort of terrifying. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, and being really scared of it, but actually it was the most freeing thing, I think, that I could ever have done. It didn't feel that way at the time, it felt quite terrifying. And of course, Thatcher died the week that my memoir came out. So it was this kind of ludicrous uh, moment of, you know, I remember my phone melting in my hand practically with people texting me going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you know, and, um, you know, uh, did your publicist do this, you know, and, um, and then sort of being thrust into this position of being a spokesperson, you know, for a generation of people. Um, uh, and I always try and say, I can only really talk about myself and my own experience because everybody else in that book will have their own version of events as well. Um, you know, that's what Janice talks about in her memoir. She's like, there is no one version of the truth. There is everybody's version of the truth. And um, so I'm very conscious of that. And of course, I've changed the name and done all sorts of things to, to, to try and protect people as much as, as much as I can and got permission from the people that I love to, to, to do what I want to do what I feel I have to do and it'll be interesting you know I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be writing another memoir at some point and um you know it's hard not to think about having been published and having had the privilege of being read by people and that not to hear their voices in my head um when I'm writing about what's happened to me I'm very admiring of your bookshelves I can't not look at them <laughs> Um, there's a lot there. Is that you? Are they all yours, or do you share your study? Yeah, I've got the bit over here. Um, is all my husband's sci-fi. Um, the stuff behind me is all the doctorate stuff and uh, family books that we've all written. So um, I find it very reassuring to be surrounded by all these uh, Clyde witnesses. <laughs> and uh, I think I, I think if you go that way, I can't say I've read them all, but the ones behind me I have read. So that makes me feel terribly learned when I'm on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good. That's very good. I do. I do not think I've read all the books that, that are behind me here. I have to say, having just moved house, my husband very kindly unpacked my office for me when I was away. When I came back, and he's put the books out, but I can't find any of them, so I'm going to have to go through them all at some point um, and undo his good work um, and sort it out. But yeah, oh, there's the Young Team by Graham Armstrong that I was just talking about. It's a really good novel. Right. Yeah. Um, it's very good. So when you were talking about memoir and autobiography and truth, mm. have you read Ghosting by Jenny Erdl? No, I've not. That's really interesting. Well, she died sadly very recently, but that's a Canongate book. And she mm. had essentially been a, a, a kind of ghostwriter for um, Nye Matala for many years um, uh -huh. and was struggling to find her own voice. So she wrote what was really supposed to be an autobiography, but because the lawyers got involved, ended up being a sort of, fictional memoir <laughs> right. about what it feels like to be using someone else's voice for them 
um, because she not only wrote a lot of his love letters and everything else, she wrote some novels for him because he was determined to become a, an acclaimed award-winning fiction Acclaim. writer. <laughs> um, and this I remember well. But given your doctorate, it's a very interesting um, philosophical inquiry really into what it's like, um, not only to write your own memoir, but to be writing other people's and, try, and trying to understand who your voice is and what is there. One of, one of my very best friends is a ghostwriter. She's, and she also writes her own fiction and non-fiction. And she's a ghostwriter. And I'm just in awe of her craft um, and how she enables people to, to, she interviews them and then she adopts their cadence. And then, you know, she's writing and she, you know, she brings, I think they are probably more interesting or better versions of themselves somehow by the time they've been through her filter. Um, but I think it's a really skilled job. Um, and it's really valuable because a lot of stories that we read would not have been told because those people couldn't write. You know, they've just left something. So, so, um, so I'd rather have the story by a ghost, a ghost than not. Uh, but yeah, they're all different kinds of ghosts. Um, uh, and would it be weird picking who's going to play you for your play? <laughs> well, um, funnily enough, um, we've had these conversations, and it's so surreal because um, people talk to you when you're talking about the play or whether you're talking about TV about Damien and and they're like Damien does and I'm so and I, and I find myself talking about myself in the third person like Salvador Dali or something <laughs> like that. and you feel totally foolish is the word that I would use if not the word I would use then I was in the pub and um and um yeah so that's weird so casting will be another level of weird but I would really like it to be a young person from the community um, and to give an opportunity to a young working class uh, kid uh, to to do that, that would be that would be nice. I was really inspired by the way that Russell T. Davis cast it. It's a sin, and I interviewed him about that show. Um, and yeah, I think that casting from a community is gives you a nuance to the story because the actors aren't trying to capture the accent or whatever; they are thinking more deeply about the character. So yeah, that's 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 what I'm thinking but yeah it would be nice if we got to the stage of casting that would be a luxury stage who knows who knows if that will ever happen any of those things will ever happen but it's interesting exploring it so I was very strict and I only gave you five objects but if you'd had a bonus object that would sell us something that you haven't mentioned about yourself what would that be oh um it would be I'm trying to get my wallet Oh, well, it's so messy. I hope this is in here. We'll try to find photograph. Oh, where is it? I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Um, this is a photo. Um, this is a photo of the merry-go-round in Brighton. Um, and it's a picture of me in my kilt, sitting like very elegantly. And the man in front of me is my husband, and it's our wedding day. And so that would that would be the object that I picked. That was snap, and it's just outside his ceramic studio on the beach. So, um, so yeah, that would be the other object. That's fantastic. That's such a picture of joy. <laughs> it's a picture of pure joy, isn't it? I just every time I look at it, it makes me smile. And that's why I keep it in my wallet because I'm just like gives me gives me such a boost every time I see it. 
Somebody's asked a question in the Q&A, I think. So, I yeah. so um, they were asking about um, the author of Ghosting, uh, which is Jenny Erdl, J-E-N-I-E-E-E-E-R-D-A-L, oh, yes. -E 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 but I've popped it in the chat. Oh, room. good. Well, that's Just great. I will check um, that out. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Useful for my next project. Yeah. Um, and I think that may be all the questions we have got time for. Um, so I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you, Damien, for letting us be so curious about you and what's going on in your head and your life, um, and really appreciate the time you've taken to tell us your stories and to be open to questions from others. Um, so thank you very much, and thank you to all of you who've joined us today. Um, thank you for having me, Eve, and thank you for your thoughtful questions and kind shepherding of my chaos. <laughs> thank and you good luck. good luck with the playing, good luck with all the writing. <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to it now. How about that? All right. Thank you very much. Bye bye.